Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. you would just tell me a little bit about your own journey in your career, because you have not had a straight line to the place that you are now. And I think it helps to understand a little bit about kind of what informs who you've become through your own career journey and and how you ended up here. So would you start there for me? Sure. Well, when I was born, I wanted to be a professor of health system science. (laughs) Awesome. It's been a straight line the whole way. Yeah, my career has gone through nuclear nonproliferation and being a Congressional Hill staffer and a few weird incarnations. But I guess the through line has been that I've always wanted to have a benefit on people's quality of life and well-being and have a bigger positive impact on population health that I could. So that took me to health policy, and I was really interested in quality and the quality signal that was being put out in the marketplace during the Clinton healthcare reform plan when I was working for Senator Kennedy's health staff. I got really interested in risk adjustment and learning the nitty gritty of quality measurement, which brought me from my public policy background into a PhD program where I focused on quality measurement and patient experience of care. And then I was kind of fortunate enough 20 some odd years ago to find my way to Kaiser Permanente when we were first starting our community health program. And I really learned so much about how challenging it is to work in community to, with all those stakeholders in an effective and humble way to put your hands on the levers of population health and how exciting that could be. So was there a soup that you stewed in as a child or as a young adult that made you think of the health of multiple people? Was there a loved one? Was there a personal experience that made you turn this way? Was it the career of your parents? What drove you to that kind of orientation early? You know, so many people have an experience with a relative who was ill or had some health struggles. I'm not sure I really had that. I had parents that served. They were very engaged in nonprofit social service work. Their work was, you know, they they felt called to it. And service was a really huge thing in my house. It wasn't about making as much money as you could or power or influence. It was about service. And I think that had a big imprint on me. And then as I went through school and got accustomed to how blessedly complicated the U.S. healthcare system is, to be quite honest, that stimulated me intellectually and just all the stakeholder dynamics and just how it all worked, taking it apart and reassembling it. It got a hold of me and I I became super interested in it. And then understanding how healthcare is 18, 20% of our economy and had such a huge impact on people's ability to show up in their families and show up in their work lives and participate in our democracy and our country and in their children's lives. That was the combination of things that I think really compelled me and and why I'm so excited about this, this field. And it was a long time ago, but do you remember what your PhD dissertation was about? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'll send it to you, Deb. <laughs> uh, yes, actually, um, it's gathering dust on my shelf. 
I was part of the team of people that validated the consumer assessment of health plan survey, which was the CAPS instrument, which is what we use now. It's the industry standard. For- yes, it still is in use. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Well, my piece of it, like any PhD, was you, you find the tiny little piece of something that is unexplored. So we were trying to develop a version of the CAPS instrument to reliably measure people's experience of care at the medical group level. So part of my dissertation was kind of all the psychometrics involved in measuring patient experience of care at medical group. And what do people think a medical group is anyway? How do you even frame that up to a patient? And then the second part of it was understanding what the different organizational factors are at the physician pod level, at the group level, at the professional association level, at the health plan level that drives positive experiences in terms of patient reported quality. As I look back on your PhD dissertation and hear you describe that, number one, I hear the passion that you have for evaluation. I hear the intellect, the connection that is there. and it informs more so how you ended up in the position that you have now, which is a professor at the Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine. But are there other puzzle pieces or other stepping stones that actually informed that journey to your current role? Yeah. You know, one of the questions that I wrestled with, and I think Kaiser Permanente and other health systems are still wrestling with, is what is the role of the medical industrial complex, (laughs) physicians specifically, but the systems that they practice into, and addressing all those things that happen outside of the medical office building, outside of the hospital that influence our health? 20 years ago, when I joined the community benefit program at Kaiser Permanente, there was some conversation around social determinants of health. It wasn't really in people's consciousness. Now it is firmly in people's consciousness. There's a large research base. Everybody's talking about it. But the question still remains, what is the specific role and accountability of doctors, the teams they practice in, and the systems that support those teams to address? So before we go into that role, I want to know about your role. So what is what is your role right now as we think about your evolution and where you've ended up? Because You're a professor, but I don't think you're a physician. And yet you're teaching future physicians. It's not crazy. (laughs) I don't think so. I think there's room for all of us here, actually. So you end up this role. and, And what is your official title? Yeah, so I'm a professor of health system science at the Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine. And the school is founded on a radical proposition, which is that physicians need to be trained in clinical science. They need to be trained in you know, the, the basic sciences, anatomy, physiology, all that stuff. And a third equal part is health system science, which is really helping physicians understand what their role is around leading their systems, around resource stewardship, around delivering the triple aim, cost, patient experience, and population health outcomes. And those skills are vitally important to a functioning health system. So I joined this school, which had this kind of crazy idea that it's not just about the doctoring, it's not just about the basic science, it's helping physicians learn all these other things. And that's what I have to offer as a professor of health system sciences. What does it mean to navigate your way through complex health systems and think about the world outside of the health system that influence your patient's health? And that's my role. I think 
people would be surprised to hear that third part, that that it's now the new physician's job and, and the established physician's job to help navigate health systems. And, and I think that there's probably even confusion about what health systems are, and maybe we back it up even a little bit more into a phrase we hear a lot more now. I never heard it 10 years ago, social determinants or what we like to call social drivers of health, because I think those two things are all interconnected. So let's talk about that a little bit. What are health systems? What are social determinants and why do they matter? Yeah. Well, firstly, I'll, I'll start even with a more basic proposition, which is that there are health care systems, our hospitals, our medical groups, health plans, organizations of people that get together to deliver health care services. When we use the term health systems without the care attached to it, we're talking about all the other systems that we encounter in our lives, the way Schools prepare us to have jobs that allow us to earn wages, that allow us to get benefits and, you know, enjoy the better quality of life and more well-being associated with that. The public health system, as we know from kind of COVID, what a huge influence they have on our lives when they work and when they don't work. You know, kind of the system of decision making that influences our built environment, how our roads are laid out, whether we're at risk for getting hit by cars. There's uh, bump outs and traffic engineering that allows traffic to move safely and has dedicated bike and pedestrian lanes. There's all these different systems. And then at the highest level, you know, there's the extent to which we are made sicker, done violence to by systemic racism and sexism and those kind of macro level factors that have such a huge influence on health disparities and health inequities. So health systems is about looking at the interplay of all those factors and organizations and systems that work at the organizational level and the structural level that influence our chances and choices and ultimately our well-being. So as I reflect back on my medical school and residency time, and I'm just, as they call it, drinking from a fire hose, there's so much to learn. There's a whole new vocabulary and language that goes with this. There's pathophysiology, complex medical decision-making, everything going into it. And I recall that feeling of And yet I'm only just a little part. How do I actually help this person in front of me make behavior change that's going to change an outcome, help them take the medicine that I know that I've learned about? And now you're telling me, as I sit there um, going backwards in time, that I also have to have an understanding and a grasp of this knowledge of huge systems that I don't even know if I can truly affect So tell me how this actually helps those budding physicians to go out and practice differently with what you're teaching them. Is this universal among medical schools? Is this specific to the school that you're working in? What what happens with that knowledge? Yeah, and Deb, I think you're hitting on a you know, super fair question that I'm not sure we have fully answered effectively, which is what is the core knowledge and skills and competencies that every physician needs to graduate with and go into residency with and perfect in residency and then refresh in practice? What are those core universal things? 
And then what are the things for those subset of physicians that become leaders in a system like Kaiser Permanente or become public health officers or surgeons general? There is some segmentation that we probably need to do. But we do know that there are some certain capabilities and, and competencies that every physician needs to know in order to be effective, even in clinical practice, in working on medication adherence and understanding that the messy desk of somebody's life might get in the way of their ability to take medication. That if you're treating somebody who is unhoused, that prescribing a month's worth of insulin that needs to be refrigerated is probably not the best clinical <laughs> strategy. So there are some things that, you know, uh, that we need to do that are basic parts of providing effective, high-quality care. And then there's some things that we hope to instill in physicians that are going to have other roles and know how to work with community-based organizations that are addressing the conditions of some of these challenges that show up in the exam room. So in a lot of ways, it really even comes back to that fundamental or basic knowledge of what is it that makes a human being healthy, right? Almost going back to what you were talking about is when we think about not only individuals, but communities, even society as a whole is really where those systems come in that then feed down and feed through and can influence those individual clinician decisions that get made in the exam room. Exactly. Our late CEO, Bernard Tyson, talked about how the future of Kaiser Permanente is about providing high-quality, prevention-oriented care to address people's physical health, providing integrated mental health and wellness, then addressing people's social health needs. As a healthcare system, there are certain things that the organization does as a whole. And the KP School of Medicine is one piece of that. We're training future physicians as our little piece of the puzzle. But the healthcare system, this place where all these physicians and health informatics people and community health people and operations people live and work as a whole can do a lot of these things. And then we need to kind of figure out, well, what is it that kind of the individual physician is responsible for? What is the thing that the team is responsible for? What are things that other units can be responsible for so the physicians and teams can focus on care delivery? So part of the systems thinking thing is really getting clear about who needs to pull what or and how do we know what is the boat that we're all in together so that we could be, you know, kind of rowing in the same direction, even though each of us has a different role and responsibility. So, Lowell, when we think about all of these health systems, there are also these pieces that come in, such as racism and sexism, and they have actually been built into the systems themselves, including the system of medicine and care delivery. So how is it that you actually help your students to address this, not only in the systems they work in, but in themselves? Such a good question. And one of the key principles that we try to bring into our curriculum is that there is this really important aspect of interpersonal bias and implicit bias and the assumptions that you bring into the clinical encounter. And we've got a really great system for training our 
students about implicit bias, about reviewing our curriculum and the cases that we use for examples of stereotypes that we could identify and ferret out of the cases so we don't flatten the lives of the cases that we're representing in our classes. But the sister to all that is that we also have to really underscore the way in which systems of oppression work. And it's not only about interpersonal racism or interpersonal sexism or any of those other things. It's also the way that systems operate and policies operate and history works to really diminish people's chances and opportunities for health and and really drive health inequities. You can't get to health inequities by focusing solely on people's individual actions, right? So that systems approach is so important to addressing systemic racism. And I imagine that you have to do that with data because how do you even uncover it unless you start looking at outcomes? Yes, and do you also do it with story? A good example here is in our hematology unit. We're talking about lead poisoning and how that operates. And in our doctoring classes, in our basic science courses, we talk about chelation therapy and how to screen for blood poisoning and lead poisoning in your, in your blood and whatnot. In the health system science course, we talk about Flint, Michigan. And we talk about Dr. Hannah Atisha and how she was able to see what was happening at a public health level. But then we take a step back and say, how was it that this Black community in Flint got so disenfranchised, had no power over the water authority that made decisions on their behalf? How did systemic racism operate there? And so it's going into those cases, those stories, talking about history and how things are the way they are shining a light on that, that is kind of the key there. I wish that I was back in medical school on so many levels and learning what students are learning today. But also, I wish this had been part of my education. It has been part of my education. I think the school of life, I think that we have continued to evolve and grow as a medical profession as well as a society looking at these things. But I can't help but looking back and, and being a little jealous of those medical students right now. Come on back, Deb. (laughs) (laughs) We have a lot to learn from you. I love it. I love it. Absolutely. So how do you actually literally teach this? Is it case reviews? Is it looking at, you know, the the modern um, press and what's happening? How is it that you actually teach this next generation about these systems? Yeah, the short answer is that we rely heavily on experiential learning and a flipped classroom approach. That's the general approach that we use because we're teaching students how to think as systems thinkers. There's a lot of simulation. There's a lot of cases that we present that we take apart and try to analyze from the perspective of multiple stakeholders. There's a lot of simulation. We use standardized patients and the standardized patients give our students feedback on what clues they've missed about their lives. So those are some kind of standard techniques. And the struggle is that, quite frankly, it can get kind of theoretical or abstract if we're not careful. And so as a new school, what we're learning is how to make this more and more concrete and realistic and based on their experience. One of the cool things about the KP School of Medicine is that from really day one, our students are in the KP medical centers with their longitudinal clerkships. From day one, Aunt Deb, when you went to med school, you probably had to wait till your third year. To I did. Your hands yes. Dirty, right? Yes. I was so close and yet not there. Right. So 
that's a great thing. That gives us an opportunity to use their clinical experience in the medical office buildings and eventually in the hospitals, a tether and some experience that we could reflect on together and take apart and analyze from a health system science perspective. The other thing that we do is that there is a requirement that, again, starting in their first year, students are connected to a community health center site for their service learning program. And it's a community health center that is in the same neighborhood as their, their medical center. So every month they're going to the community health center and the partners of the community health center that are community-based organizations, understanding those social determinants of health and how the community health center and their partners are addressing the social de determinants of health. So that's yet another setting and opportunity for us to address these other components to medical education. So as I'm just reflecting on what I'm hearing from you is, number one, it's all connected. And we've known this for a long time, right? We've seen evidence about the effects of it's not just what goes on in the exam room. It's not even just individual behaviors. It's, it's very popular to say, well, just do what you need to do and, and you won't have to, to pay for insulin, for instance. But it's really, again, it's where you live. So it's all connected. And then we're all connected. I think that sometimes that piece also gets missing. I think that in the current world, we're just so individualistic. We forget that we are all connected. And so some of this is attitudinal. How do you teach that piece of it? You're so right. And, you know, it's interesting that, and I'm relatively new to academic medicine, but there's been this trajectory towards competency-based medical education, really getting specific about the specific skills that you need to demonstrate and the progression you need to make over time as a trainee and then a, a practicing physician. That's where medical education is moving to. Along comes this idea of health system science, which has all these attributes that you just described. Yes, there are specific skills and competencies. It's also about a way of thinking, habits of mind, ways of seeing the world. And I think the way we really step up to that challenge is by giving our students every opportunity that we can to have them look, as a colleague of mine says, look up, look down, look around. This is the context that you're practicing medicine in. How do you understand it? How do you understand its implications for you, for your patients, for your interprofessional team? It's a way of seeing. And the challenge I have is I've been doing this for, you know, 30 years, right? And 20 years in Kaiser, right? And I've got a beard and I'm, I'm old. This is kind of a way of seeing that I have acquired over lots of different experiences. So my challenge as a professor is to share some of that, but to put in front of my students opportunities to have those experiences in a simulated setting, in our classroom exercises, our activities that we put together in the service learning environment and their community health centers or their the projects that they do for the, the community-based organizations that they work with. And just to create those opportunities to reflect and see how incredibly interconnected things are, how different stakeholders see the same phenomena from very different vantage points and have completely legitimate and different views on what's going on. Creating those moments, those opportunities to reflect is, I think, the nine-tenths of the law here. Yeah, absolutely. So as I think about this it, it's in the world, but really you're systematizing it in a way as part of education. It will become part of the mindset, the way these people practice. 
What about people already in practice? Is there ongoing education? Is there certification? Does this become part of the required knowledge base for physicians to continue their education around? And and how do we help that happen? Yeah, I'm really interested in that question. One of the things that's happening in Kaiser Permanente, and we're not alone in this, is that there's a huge amount of organizational energy around helping our members, first of all, knowing what the unmet social needs of our members, food, housing, transportation, social isolation, those things that that get in the way of people's health and really contribute to it when those things are going right. So figuring out what people's social needs are and then assisting them and getting support to meet those needs. That shift is leading to a need to train our frontline staff around how to ask about people's social needs in ways that don't stigmatize them, how to figure out how to have those sensitive conversations, when to hand off to a social worker, when to hand off to a navigator and all these other new roles that are being created, and what those needs, those unmet needs mean for the patient care plan and for what medicines are prescribed and what advice is given and the whole plan of care clinically. So there's a whole bunch of continuing medical education for the physicians and and similar programs for the non-physician staffs that are in the pipeline now that are getting developed and released. And I'm really excited about the ability for those things to help people that are already in practice. And I can see it requires a team to be able to do that, right? It's become such a complex team. And then as we've been mostly talking about the healthcare system, as we think about this for these young physicians coming out, do you also go into how this then connects with health policy, which is, again, maybe going backwards a little bit for your career, but that connection is important, knowing how much does depend on what happens outside of the exam room, outside of the healthcare system. Are you also encouraging, teaching, providing access to the ability to afford bigger change through policy for these students? Yeah, and there's two elements to it. There's the health policy that is about the social drivers of health, whether we've got enough affordable housing, whether we've got you know a healthy food system that is accessible and affordable, whether we've got racist policies and practices by design or by you know benign neglect that lead to the fact that communities are segregated and some folks don't have access to the resources that others do to to have a healthy life. There's that stuff. And there's a role for the physicians who have incredible political and social power and are trusted policy influencers to have an impact on those policies. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that we could do to train physicians to affect that set of health policies. Then closer to home, there's so much going on now around value-based care and how physicians and hospitals are paid. Medicaid managed care plans have to demonstrate before they get paid. And so there's a role also for us helping physicians to understand those decisions that have such a huge impact on their practice lives and bring some wisdom to those sets of health policies too. So we're not forgetting the stuff that's closer to home as well. We just did a uh, set of sessions around the Affordable Care Act and what the influence of the Affordable Care Act was. And we started off that series of sessions by talking about health policy and how you need to engage in health policy because if you are not actively involved, your fate is going to be determined by others. So that's another aspect of that. 
So, Lowell, I want you to project yourself about 15 years into the future, and you're having a reunion of the first medical school class from the KP School of Medicine. And one of your students didn't particularly stand out, but you remember them because you're going to remember everybody from that first year class, right? They're going to come up to you during your reunion and say, oh, Professor Solomon, your class helped me so much. What do you hope it is that it helped them to do? I look forward to that reunion. <laughs> and I have to say, it's an exceptional bunch of people that have heart and passion and they're so smart. You know, I think the thing that would just light me up the most is for that student to come up to me and say, it has changed the way I provide care to my patients, the kinds of questions that I ask, the way that I see and try to understand all the factors in their lives that need to go into an effective plan of care for them, the context of their lives that I try to bring into the exam room the kind of shared decision-making that I engage in with them. I think seeing those kinds of skills and practice behaviors and the joy in medicine that I think will come from their ability to practice that kind of medicine is the thing that would really flip my boat. And I think you alluded to something that is hard right now. We know that healthcare providers have just been going through hell with COVID, with COVID care, with hospitals overflowing, with trying to get people care, and still understanding. I think the pandemic has really revealed what's been there all along, but we weren't necessarily all cognizant of, which is it's great if you've got access to care, but there's still so many who don't. And physician and provider burnout is high. And so I think to the extent that this also gets back to not only just resilience, but the joy that people have in that one-on-one -on -one experience with knowing they're doing a good job, that they have the resources to do that as well, both intellectual and, and physical, to be able to connect with the social worker who's down the hall, who can connect with the food bank in the community. You get to go home at night feeling satisfied instead of burned out, if that can happen. Yeah, what's coming up for me is a memory of visiting some physicians that were piloting an early effort to connect our members in our Richmond Medical Center in Northern California with uh, necessary food and housing supports and other things. The doctor who was leading that pilot, she was a pediatrician, if I remember correctly, was saying, you know, there are conversations that I know I should be having with my families. And I'm not having those conversations because I don't have the tools and resources to offer them when they say that there's, you know, they're struggling with food insecurity or they're struggling with their rent. I don't want to ask those questions because I don't have answers for them. And that dehumanizes me, it makes me a worse clinician, and it makes me provide a substandard quality of care. So, and I think there's a lot of research to suggest that physicians know that there are these important things that they're not asking about that are deeply connected to their ability to provide high quality care. So if we are able to provide physicians and their teams with those tools, those resources, we facilitate the asking of those questions, the building of better relationships between doctors and their patients. I think that's going to make doctors a lot happier about showing up and feeling a lot better about the professions that they've signed up for.
And to accentuate something or lift up something that you were saying, Deb, that doesn't mean that physicians need to do it alone. There's a role for the interprofessional team, which includes a social worker and a navigator and a community health worker or a promotora and a food bank nutritionist on that interprofessional team. Let's add a legislative assistant for your local supervisor, congressperson to that interprofessional team. And there's a role for healthcare systems, places like Kaiser Permanente and other integrated delivery systems to create the electronic health records that prompt a physician to ask questions at the right time in the right place that create the referral system so that it's easy for a physician or her medical assistant to make a referral to a somebody that can help somebody enroll in SNAP. So it's not all on the physician, but what is on the physician is being curious and asking about all those things in people's lives that might get in the way of their healthcare. So your goal early on, as we go back to the story of Lowell, was about influencing the most people that you could for the good of the health for all. And it sounds like that's where you landed. It sounds like this is incredible work. You're obviously passionate about it. You are an amazing teacher, partner, and I, I think this will continue to ripple really through the med school and then as as these students go out through the world of medicine and beyond. So thank you for the work that you're doing. You are making the world healthier through your work. Thank you. That's very kind of you. And there's this great quote that I forget who whose it is, but it's like, don't don't ask what the world needs. That is my one of my favorite quotes, absolutely. And so that we do respect for the person who said this, this is uh, actually Howard Thurman. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And that's exactly right. Amen. Yeah, amen. Thank you, Dr. Thurman. <laughs> and it needs physicians that are showing up to work with their full soul and spirit and It's interesting to be at my age and stage in life and have the privilege of working directly with the next generation of physicians and physician leaders and health system leaders. And that is such a privilege and gives me hope at a time when, you know, there's so much hard stuff, right, that we're trying to deal with. But working with students that are passionate and are focused on creating more health justice, more social justice kind of also makes me come alive. Is there anything that you wish I would have asked you and I haven't? I don't think so. I think we've covered lots of great territory. Thank you for the questions. That that was a fun conversation and a great journey we took together. Absolutely. And thank you. You are a fabulous interview. You have your own richness that you bring to this with, again, your your personal journey through what you've done. It it all informs what you're doing now. You are eloquent. You are passionate. And uh, you've been just such a fabulous guest. So I appreciate that as well. Uh, Thank you, Deb. That's kind. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Fuse podcast with Deb Friesen, MD. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and will share another episode of Health Fuse with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 
no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals. Music